Our text is in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. And I'll read verses 1 through 6. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct, accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, uh, every bit of it, and we pray that you would open our minds to understand and open our uh, wills to embrace uh, your will for us. We thank you for this time together, and we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit to guide and to lead. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and give you thanks. Amen. May be seated. It was uh, it was not easy selecting a text for this Sunday. I noticed a couple of months ago it was Mother's Day, and uh, I thought, oh, dare I try that again? I think last year my Mother's Day message was kind of a flop. I enjoyed it, but you know. The moms might not have appreciated it as much as another message. Uh, but I also was very tempted to preach another message on Job because I'd said two weeks ago that there were really two major themes in Job. And so I really vacillated early this week as to which one I wanted to do. So I did a third one. So didn't want to go with either of those two. The uh, If you... Look up sermons that are preached on this text. They all, almost all address the main topic, which, of course, is submission of wives to their husbands. And uh, this is actually in the context of a larger set of submission topics. You begin in 1 Peter 2.13 with citizens being in submission to government, and then you have servants being in submission to masters in 2.18, and that is easily equated with today's environment with employees and employers. And so then we come to our text with wives being in submission to husbands. And so we all have to learn submission, and that is a very noble purpose of 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. But it's not what I'm going to talk about because buried in the heart of this text is really the essence of what Peter is getting at as to why we all should submit and why specifically in, in this instance women, wives, should submit to their husbands. And so my purpose is to have us focus on that heart of 1 Peter 3. And I think it's really the heart of all submission. So now... I want to uh, begin, though, by emphasizing that women, I think, can benefit from verse, uh, verses 1 through 6. And if when you read this as a woman, as a wife, if you wish it weren't in the Bible, then Peter meant it for you. So 
I just would ask you to focus on this, meditate on this, embrace the fact this is what God is calling you to do. But I do want to also share a surprising observation that I had in reading this text. It's right there. It's staring us in, in, in the eyes, but I'd never really realized it until I was meditating on it and producing the message yesterday. So that'll be one of the last things I share with you. Now, I'm not going to focus on, like I said, the whole thing. And so I want to get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of it is actually right in the center. I've picked out six verses. We're focusing on the middle two. So I'm going to begin, though, with a story. And uh, I don't have a great memory. But for some reason, odd stories from my youth stick with me. And I'm sure you're probably in the same boat. Uh, Some things just stick with you. you. You can't get rid of them if you want to. I remember being in high school and, ha- and hearing, I didn't participate in this, but hearing a very brief conversation between two girls. And actually, the one girl also didn't speak, so it was really just what this one girl and I heard this other girl say. And the two girls, I believe their names were Kathy and Patty. And Kathy was a rather big, frumpy girl. Um, she wasn't a wallflower. She was very outspoken. Uh, but didn't wear cosmetics and, you know, kind of a plain kind of a girl. And uh, the other girl was a cheerleader. She was this tiny little blonde girl named Patty, and she was actually quite nice. She wasn't stuck up at all. And uh, yet, I happened to be standing there. Now, I'm kind of a long-haired druggie, so I have no idea why I was standing with these two girls. Um, But this is what I heard. Kathy is telling Patty, um, I don't wash my hair with shampoo. I don't wash my hair with conditioner. All I use is soap. And she was very proud of this fact. And uh, Patty was obviously uncomfortable. She didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I really couldn't care less. I probably only washed my hair with soap too. Maybe I was in agreement with her. But as I've lived... I was probably, what, maybe 16, 17 years old at the time. But as I've gone on, I've come to really understand a lot of what was being said there. It had to do with how these girls addressed life, how they looked at themselves, how they looked at others, how they looked at what others expected of them. It all had to do about beauty, and that's central to our text. So that's why I wanted to bring it up, because when I start diving into messages, these memories come to me. And so I just think, well, you know, you shouldn't say everything that comes through your mind, but that seemed to apply. Now, throughout history, I have no idea what these girls' religious backgrounds were. Don't know, probably never will. But throughout history, Christians have also been so easily deceived or misunderstand just the, just the central concept of beauty. And so, for instance, uh, we... My wife has kind of always liked the Amish or admired them in many ways. We uh, would go visit them when, we went, when she found out I was from uh, eastern Ohio and pretty much where the Amish are. I mean, you can drive 30 minutes away and you see the signs with the horse and buggy on it. And uh, we would go out into the countryside and, and see the Amish, stop at like their houses and things. And uh, there was one, so I remember we stopped and looked at some quilts at a woman's house. So the Amish really don't, have much use or need of beauty. Their buildings are always white. And it's not painted white. It's not a bright white. It's a whitewash, kind of a grayish, yucky white. So, I mean, they could have just painted their barn, and you wouldn't know. All they're doing is protecting it from the elements. They're not making it look nice. So they really don't understand or accept 
when you drive around rural America and see these beautiful farmsteads with beautiful red-painted barns, the house might look like a dump, but the barn is this showpiece of beauty. And so that's just the way that uh, many farmers are, not the Amish. Yet, even though they dress plainly, they live plainly, they have no ornamentation in their homes, the walls are always white, yet, for some odd reason, the elders of the Amish communities did allow their women to express their creativity and their love for color through quilting. And so quilts became very commonly filled with beautiful colors, beautiful patterns, and so that probably had to be nipped in the bud. So the elders, I think, I don't know the history of this, but there came to be what's called a humility block that was added to Amish quilts. And so this is just this ugly, ill-suited color that's injected into the middle of this beautiful, otherwise quilt. Beautiful quilt, beautiful design, beautiful colors, and just this ugly, like, green or brown block that's thrown into it to make sure that you're humble. The women that produce this are humbled by putting that humility block in there. See, this to me typifies the Amish. It typifies this approach to life. You can't go too far or else pride will kick in. You can't dare indulge in these things because otherwise we'll be led astray. And so you don't even go near it. You don't even go there. And this actually reminded me in my stream of consciousness of a story that Joel Joel told like last summer. And it was a fellow who, I think it was a salesman that was telling him about a man that bought a truck, $50,000 pickup truck. And the moment before he left the lot, he walked up, kicked in a quarter panel, said, now it's a work truck. I guess he figured if he'd gone to his work site without a dent in it, his other coworkers would have made fun of him or not had lunch with him or something. So it, he would have been called a sissy or something for having a truck that didn't have a dent in it. But this is similar, isn't it? It's someone who really can't stand this beautiful thing, and they have to damage it because otherwise they feel that it's uh, unnecessarily beautiful. But that takes us to the flip side, doesn't it? How many of you have had a coworker say, I got a new car? Oh, you do? Oh, yeah, it's here. Would you like to see it? Sure. Well, I didn't know I'd have to pack a day pack to go find that car because he's way out in the parking lot, way far away from all the other cars. It's, that's it. It's that speck in the distance. Oh, okay. I'll go get my backpack and we'll head out there. <laughs> you know, people are just so funny. Now they've got this beautiful thing and they want it to last forever, but it's a car. It's not going to happen. I worked with a fellow at UP, and he had a Toyota Celica that he was so proud of. He did not get a door ding for three years, and he knows when and where he got it because he was in a hurry, and he pulled into a Walmart parking lot, and he came out, and there's a door ding. I mean, wow. His life, his world was coming to an end. I actually worked at Lockheed out in California, and I went to work one Saturday, and there was a man that I worked with, a really old man. He was probably in his mid-40s, and I was 25 at the time, you know, so he was gray-haired and bearded, and I just thought of him as ancient. But he was a very nice guy, very, had it all together. He was a, actually trained in psychology, and uh, AI actually uses a lot of such guys. They're trained to kind of study human-machine interaction and to design screens and do this like, type of stuff. So anyway, he was was working in our uh, in our AI center there, and I had occasion to talk with him at times, you know, and I knew him fairly well. But I show up this Saturday, and I pull into a parking spot, and he's like three or four spots over, and he's like jumping up and down and gesticulating, and I I'm like, what is wrong? I come over, 
he had bought this brand new Olds 88, this big blue boat, and it had a ding in the driver's door. And he was so angry. And I thought, wow, this guy's a psychologist, and this is just destroying his world. And uh, so it just goes to show you how far psycho- psychology can take you in terms of having peace on earth. Uh, because he would have killed the person, I think, if he'd seen who did that door ding. But so, see, we have these two extremes. We have these unrealistic expectations of beauty and, and the loss of beauty. And so what I wanted to point out to you, though, is that uh, we must understand beauty from God's perspective in order to understand it at all. Another people, another Christian sect that really had a problem with beauty were the shakers, right? All their furniture really plain, all their clothing really plain. Didn't believe pleasure should be a part of your life, and so they didn't practice marital sex. And for some reason, their movement died out. But so Christians have misunderstood life. We must understand it from God's perspective. What does he want us to know about beauty? And I believe it's right here in the heart of this. How do we know what God wants? Well, look at creation. Look at how beautiful it is. I just am always astounded. I'll walk through a really ugly parking lot that has seen much better days. And you see this beautiful flower growing up in the middle of nowhere. It just, you know God exists when you see stuff like this. It's just, this is the world he's created. Man messes it up a lot, but yet God keeps cleaning it up and and showing us little symbols like this that tell us who he is, where he is, what he wants us to do. So, listen to what Jesus had to say in Matthew 6. And now Jesus, we know, he was the creator. When you read John chapter 1, that is obvious. Through him, all things were made. So here we have him speaking in uh, Matthew 6, starting at verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He's speaking of flowers that adorn grassy fields. And he points to this as evidence of God's love, not only for you, but for all of creation, all of this world. He adorns it with these beautiful things so that we can see his love. We can feel his love. Uh, when when uh, God explains to uh, Moses how he wants the priestly garments to be made, this is how he closed it. It is for glory and for beauty. That's why they were dressed as they were. It was for glory and for beauty. So God is telling us he admires beauty. Uh, In a commentary by Barnes on this, he just puts it succinctly. He says, God meant that this should be a beautiful world, that there should be something more than mere utility. And so if we view beauty in a utilitarian way, if we view view our world as beauty being something that is beyond what God desires, then we have a fundamental misunderstanding of our God. So adornment is good. I wanted to emphasize that very strongly. And yet this text is a warning against excessive adornment. So I wanted to first say, I'm not saying that it's bad, it's good. We just have to keep it in its place. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. And then he gives three examples that 
are just so timeless because the three examples that he's given, and he's speaking of women, are arranging the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel. These are still right up there in the top ten for women, if not the top three. I would add a few more. Cosmetics, shoes, if they weren't included under clothing, perfume, and in our culture, tattoos and body piercings. I think those are all probably in the top ten for women right now in our society. Not for us, but for our society. But now while this text speaks to women concerning this warning, hair, jewelry, clothing, you could use the same three, I think, for many men. Probably not many of us, but many men are also focused on hair, jewelry, and clothing. I know some that are like that. And actually, I've heard that whole European nations are like that. And so I'm waiting to hear the, my, my family tell me firsthand when they come back from having visited various European nations. So now, in the culture that Peter is speaking to, in the Roman and Greek culture, what is it that they faced? They faced this. Roman and Greek culture had embraced this kind of extensive decorating of the women's hair and bodies with ornamentation. And so the, the wealthier women would have these thin sheets of gold that would have intricate lacework cut into it, and then they would insert them into their hair and then braid it into their hair to where it would take hours for them to prepare. And th this must have then be been introduced into the church. It probably began with, you know, big extravagant parties and such. But as these women came to faith, it began to creep into the church. And I believe we've seen it. Many of the churches we've gone to, we've seen it. There is a, there is a competition with women especially in our churches to one-up one another in terms of dressing really, really, really well. And I know some of the, uh, what do they call it? Our Lady of Fair 80, uh, Our Lady of 680 uh, over there, the Christ community. I've seen, I've seen uh, in worship services there, women dressed like they're going to some fashion show. Now, maybe that's how they always dress. I don't know. But it's just, for church, you know, is that really necessary? Is that where you want the attention to be? Do you want it to be on yourself as opposed to God? But see, that's what he's warning us against. All of this is in keeping with where you want the focus to be. And Women sometimes get confused when they're coming to worship. They think they want the focus to be on them when it really shouldn't be. It should be on God. And so anything that they do excessively that distracts anybody from God is probably just a little bit overboard. But again, who's to say? It's really in the heart of the individual that where this must take root, where this must be manifested. We already have acknowledged that God loves beauty. God didn't want that girl in my high school to be washing her hair with soap. If shampoo and conditioner and some cosmetics would make her look that much more beautiful. God, had, God likes beauty. He made many of us beautiful. Not all of us, but, but enough of us to where we know God likes beauty. Now, another thing that came to mind is this, when we talk about merely outward. Uh, when I was a kid, I was like 20 years old and I was stationed at Southern California Camp Pendleton. I was on my uh, sixth car at the time. It didn't seem like a lot to me. And compared to my motorhead buddy, it wasn't. He was about the same age as me, maybe six months older, but he had already had 25 to 30 cars. And what astounded me is that he had profited on the sale of 28 of them, of the 30. He'd only lost money by that time on two cars. Now, why was this? Now, that's according to him. And maybe he's judging on a, on a scale that doesn't account for all of the money and time he put into them. I don't know. But he would buy a car that wasn't running, and he would sell it once he fixed it up for more. than he paid for it, more than he put into it. So now, 
there are two extremes of people like this. One is the motorhead that just works on the engine, just gets it running right, that sticks all these stickers in the back window. But the outside of the car is potentially really ugly. I mean, his favorite car was this Chevy Vega wagon that was baby poop brown with wood stickle sticker vinyl things on the side. It was just the ugliest car. But he loved it. He loved it because he loved the engine. He loved the, the exhaust system. He loved all this work he'd done to it. And yet, motorheads don't even want to wash the outside. They want you to see the grease that smears the front quarter panels. That's, that's hours of work that's gone into them making that car beautiful inside. And then there's another fellow who we lived near up in Fremont when Tabitha and I first got married. He was working on this 68 Cadillac all the time. Anytime I'd come out to our little bay, he had a bay near us and he would be working on that car. I don't think that car ran. I, I don't know that I ever saw it leave the bay, but it was his pride and joy. And he would be out there installing a, a uh, retractable antenna in this car. He would be out there with the hood up installing a chrome air cleaner on it. Uh, anything to make it look pretty. But it didn't run. It doesn't make any sense. Then we met his wife or his girlfriend, whomever he was living with, because we'd be in our condo and we'd hear her yelling from the apartment next to us over to where he was. And I don't remember what his name was, but, but my wife and I heard his name yelled quite often out the door of their apartment. So then we thought, oh, that's why he's spending all his time over at the car. Even if it doesn't run, that's where I'd rather be. But so see, there's this obsession with inward and outward. These are two extremes of beauty. These men had perceptions of beauty that were vastly different from one another. My friend, the motorhead, it all had to do with whether it ran or not, whether it purred like a kitten. He couldn't care less what the outside looked like. And yet this other man, he was obsessed with what the outside looked like. He didn't care what the inside worked like. So see, you could see the analogy here to this topic of beauty. There is an outward beauty, there is an inward beauty. Both are of value to God. And yet, I would say that many marriages fall apart now, as, as we know, 50% or so in this nation, because the husband and wife have such a shallow concept of beauty that it really doesn't penetrate inside. Or by the time it does penetrate inside, it's only one of the two of them that, is, that this is happening for. And so then they're now not in agreement as to what's beautiful, what is worthy of being worked on. So then they abandon their marriage. Now, Peter next points to the greater good, and this is where we want to spend the bulk of the time, and this is in verse 4. And this is a beautiful verse. Listen to this verse. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. I want to read that again and emphasize four phrases that we'll talk a little bit more about. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Those are four thoughts that we want to develop. So now, what does it mean that we're talking about the hidden person of the heart? A good way of defining this is to just give you references from elsewhere, especially in the New Testament. This, is, this hidden person of the heart is the person being conformed to the image of Christ in Romans 
This hidden person of the heart is the inner man who delights in the law of God in Romans 7.22. This hidden person of the heart is the new man of Colossians 3 being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And this hidden person of the heart is the new man of Ephesians 4.24, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This hidden person is who you truly are if you are God's. The hidden person is who will emerge from the cocoon of this world to be the butterfly in the next world that God has prepared for us. That is the hidden person. Eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. In that world, that hidden person will be revealed to those who are now children of God, to those who leave this earth as children of God. So that's the hidden person of the heart that Peter refers to. So now we have incorruptible beauty. And so obviously, this is contrasted with what we've already talked about, the external beauty, the ephemeral beauty of hair and jewelry and clothing, and I might add, flesh. When you see pictures of famous people who, in their heyday, especially when we look now back like 60, 80 years ago, and you see these pictures of of young actresses when they were like 18 to 25 or so, And then you see them 40 years later. Age does not discriminate against any of us. It makes us all look old. It steals whatever beauty we had. And so see, he is contrasting this incorruptible beauty, not only with these outward adornments, but with our flesh itself. And beautiful people, you think they might have a huge advantage, and they do in terms of worldly success, Beautiful people have a huge advantage. I remember reading a study once where they took the same woman and they dressed her differently and put her out on the interstate next to a broken down car. And when she was dressed in high heels and a short dress and to the nines, they had like 20 men stop for her within an hour. When they had her dressed down, dressed frumpily, she had like two men stop for her in that one hour. I mean, it it affects people. It affects what we do. It affects how we do it. I was telling my son that in this nation, only 3.9% of the men are 6'2 or taller. That's only one out of every 25 men. But how many men that run Fortune 500 companies do you think are 6'2 or over? A full third. I mean, it is a huge advantage to being tall if you want to succeed in business. There are only 10 CEOs out of the millions that are five, six, or less. Short guys have a huge disadvantage in succeeding in business. And this has nothing to do with their capabilities. It has everything to do with how they're viewed outward. And so you might think, okay, these beautiful people and these tall men, they have a huge advantage, right? Well, maybe in this world, yes. But yet God runs us through these challenges of not being beautiful, of not being tall. And then he blesses you with these. These human disadvantages can oftentimes result in our huge spiritual advantages because we are open to God's mercy. We are open to God's love more so than when we think we have it all together and we're the beautiful people and we're succeeding on this earth. Who needs God? 
I have success without God. And yet, such people, when they're 40, 50 years down the road, they still have the pride that they had when they were young and successful. They still don't see that they need God. They're intent on leaving this earth thinking they had it all. They had the best that they could have. And they're fools. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? That's what the queen said. And this is what the mirror replied. Famed is thy beauty, majesty, but a lovely maid I see. Rags cannot hide her gentle grace. Alas, she is more fair than thee. We put way too much stock in beauty on this earth, especially fleshly beauty. You know, we can all doll ourselves up. We can look good for a few minutes here and there. But it takes a lot of work to look good all the time, doesn't it? We all know how ugly we can be. We've, we've been there and done that. Every day we think, oh, how can God love us? I'm so nasty. I'm so gross. My wife would agree. How can God love you? You're so nasty. You're so gross. You know, but we have to learn to tolerate this in one another, don't we? We doll ourselves up and look good maybe for worship or for weddings. But the reality is, is that God made us this way. And he understands us. And he is not deluded by our unbeauty. He's made us that way. He accepts us that way. So, now what describes, what best describes the beauty of the hidden person? It's said next. It's the next phrase. A gentle and quiet spirit. Do you have a gentle and quiet spirit? Isaiah wrote this, and I'm asking actually both you men and you women, because uh, let me read what was written of Christ in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Note that it says, a bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench. What does it mean to have a gentle and quiet spirit? One commentator, I think, put it very succinctly, and this is what he said. A person of gentle spirit will not needlessly provoke others. A person of quiet spirit will not easily be provoked by others. And then yesterday I go to the mall and I see this bumper sticker. Arrive alive. I thought, oh, you know, this is one of those drug or drinking bumper stickers. No. Arrive alive, don't make me mad. This is someone threatening road rage should you get in their way. And I thought, well, that's really good. It typifies the antithesis of what it is I want to share. This is the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit. This person doesn't have that. So see, a person of meek spirit or gentle spirit will not needlessly provoke others and will not needlessly easily be provoked. That is a deep abiding peace with God. If you have a gentle and quiet spirit, it's because you are at peace with God. If you don't have a gentle and quiet spirit, it's probably because you're not at peace with God. Because hell can attack you on this earth and not destroy that deep abiding peace with God. 
That's what Job had. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. He had that peace. And Satan threw everything at him in order to unseat that peace. And it did. We know that it unseated his peace. But yet, who of us could have withstood a hundredth of what Job withstood and endure and have that be peaceful? So now, do you recognize a deep sense of abiding peace in your life? And the next question is even harder. Do you want to be a gentle and quiet spirit? Is that something you aspire to? Is it something you work towards? I don't think all of us do. Many of us are like Popeye. I am what I am. And what is implied is you better accept it. Or I've got my knuckle sandwich for you. So now, hear what Matthew Henry said about this. A true Christian's chief care lies in the right ordering and commanding of his own spirit. Let me read that again. A true Christian's chief care lies in the right ordering and commanding of his own spirit. In other words, we can't control others. We can only hope and pray to control ourselves. Where the hypocrite's work ends, there the true Christian's work begins. Do you understand the importance of that last phrase? People are content with themselves. They don't want to change. They like having a mean and loud spirit. And they think that's who they are. They think that's who God made them to be. And so they have given up aspiring to be the gentle and quiet spirit that God wants us all to be, that was his son, who, in whose image we are supposed to be conformed. Now the next phrase is very precious in the sight of God. This is very precious in the sight of God. Now, I have always been uh, impressed that the Bible doesn't have more adjectives, more colorful, flowery, meaningful adjectives. The word very is kind of like the simplest adjective, really, to accentuate something. And yet it occurs in the Bible only 280 times. If I'd written the Bible, it would be there 100,000 times. I would have very, 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 very everywhere. But yet, in Genesis, it occurs 19 times, and so I looked up each of them. And they are so strategically placed. I would have never thought to do that. Let me read you just a couple. The very first occurrence of very is in Genesis 131. Indeed, it was very good. God had said good, 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 very good. He pronounced his creation very good. And it's nice to see that. It's the very first occurrence, and it's wonderful. The next occurrence, 4-5, Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. And then he murdered his brother. So very is appropriate here, I think. You know, it's a huge deal that happens. And the very telegraphs that. Very occurs only 19 times. I think that's a good community meditation series, don't you? Very Genesis, I think, is this title. 19 times. We could talk about each one's in Genesis where this comes out. But so you see, wonderful occurs 22 times in the Bible. Amaze occurs 21 times. Beautiful, 53 times. Magnificent, once. If I'd written the Bible, those words would be all throughout it. I'd have it everywhere. But yet I'd obscure the beauty and the simplicity of Scripture. And God doesn't do that. He keeps it that way for our benefit. We learn from this. Where he emphasizes stuff, we must emphasize stuff. That's why I bring it up. He says very 
in this sentence. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Very precious. So see, that's why I want to bring up this very. It's because God wants it, not because we do. Now, I wanted to share with you this, this interesting observation that I made. And let me read the whole thing again. See if you can kind of have an idea as to what I'm going to say. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. It's unfair of me to ask you to look for a needle in the haystack, one that I've rifled through all my life, and yet I just found the needle yesterday. And it's this. This text is specifically written to women, right? We know that. And yet... Peter also isolates a specific woman or women, a class of women to whom he's referring. He says, wives likewise be submissive to your husbands even if some do not obey the word. And this means they're unbelievers. This means that the wife has come to faith after they've been married or in her indiscretions in her youth, she embraces a man who's not in the faith. Or, as we know of some examples, the man fooled her into thinking that she thought he was in the faith when in reality he wasn't. We've seen evidence of that too. Men want Christian wives. And yet that's the, that's the funny thing. Why would a man want a Christian wife if he's not a Christian? Why would he want a Christian wife if he's not a Christian? That's the puzzling thought that comes up. And it's because the same gentle and quiet spirit that is most appealing, that is very precious to God, he values even unbelieving men who can be so crude, who can slap bumper stickers on their car that say, arrive alive, don't make me mad. Even such men might be persuaded if they have Christian wives. And why? How is it that they're persuaded? It says through their chaste conduct accompanied by fear. It's not fear of them. It's fear of God. It's not fear of the husband that the husband admires. It's the fear of God, that there's a greater master in her life. And boy, am I glad he is, because she makes my life more pleasant this way. And I want to share one story that I read out of one of the commentaries to close. An unbelieving husband, and this is like probably over 100 years ago, an unbelieving husband is out drinking with people with friends, his male friends, and he starts bragging on his wife how she's this Christian and how she'll do anything I say. As a matter of fact, we could go home right now and I could tell her to make us a dinner and she would. So one of the men challenges, oh, no, no, no. So they, he takes them up on the challenge. So this drunk man takes two of his drunk friends home, uh, awaken his wife at like midnight and he tells her to make him a meal and, he, and she does. And not only does she make them the meal, she's very pleasant about it. And so one of the men must have been shamed enough to want to ask this woman why she's doing this because his wife probably would never have done such a thing. And she said, 
It's true that when we married, neither one of us believed in God. But I've come to know that God exists, that God loves me, and that I will go to heaven to be with him. My husband is lost. My husband is destined for hell. I've made it, I've made it my goal on this earth to treat him with as much respect and love as I can because it might be all the love and respect he ever has in this, in this world because I know where he's going. So the husband is so moved by this because he, I guess he'd never really even understood this. He starts going to church with her and he comes to faith through this wife's sacrifice, through her uh, love of him and her giving of herself to him. The, she didn't deserve the salvation that God had granted her. She didn't deserve the abuse that her husband was giving her. But yet, she changed him. And it's because she was willing to stick with him, and not only to stick with him, but to love him through the adversity that he gave her. I want to read one more thing, and this is a quote from uh, a commentator by the name of Adams. All the ornaments placed on the head and body of the most illustrious female are in the sight of God of no worth. But a meek and quiet spirit are in his sight invaluable, proceeding from and leading to himself, being incorruptible, surviving the ruins of the body and the ruins of time and enduring eternally. May God make us all precious in his sight by granting us gentle and quiet spirits. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we do thank you for the fact that uh, there is, uh, in a colloquialism, a method to your madness. We so want to please ourselves. We so want to focus on our own pleasure, our own wants, our own rights, that we lose sight of the fact that Christ sacrificed all that for our sakes and that you call us to sacrifice all of that for the sakes of the lost in this world as well as one another. And so we pray, Father, that you would prick our spirits, that you would uh, open us up to be transformed by the renewing of our spirits. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the gentle and quiet spirits that you promise us as we faithfully follow you. And we pray, Lord, that you would do this and that you would bring this to pass in each of us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.